welcome back to the Insightful Thinkers podcast. Between 1915 and 1965, behaviorism was the dominant school of psychology in the United States. Seeking to make psychology more scientific, more objective, behaviorists sought to study only observable behaviors, completely ignoring the mind's role in generating these behaviors. However, with the dawn of the cognitive revolution in the 1950s, it soon became clear that the mind not only can, but must be considered in the study of psychology. This is what we're talking about today, behaviorism, and then the subsequent cognitive revolution that supplanted behaviorism. Please refer to the episode description for the sources for this episode. The cognitive revolution was really the start of the scientific study of the mind. Behaviorists that dominated American psychology before the cognitive revolution thought of this line of research and studying the mind to be completely futile. How, they thought, are you supposed to study things that you can't observe, like thoughts, memories, and emotions? Scientists are only supposed to study things that they can measure and manipulate, thought the behaviorists. This perspective was what caused behaviorism to dominate American psychology in the early to mid-20th century. Behaviorists simply gave up all talk of scientifically studying the mind. It wasn't until the 1950s when the cognitive revolution finally started to started to take place. Psychological scientists then demonstrated that organisms have innate experiences that cannot be ignored, and brains perform high-level mental activities like language, math, thought, and memory. These things simply cannot be explained by a strict adherence to the behaviorist model. To really understand the cognitive revolution, we have to first understand the system that was in place before it. The cognitive revolution came in response to behaviorism, but long before the cognitive revolution, the, there was the behaviorist revolution. The behaviorist revolution occurred in the early 1900s when behaviorists began to propose to redefine psychology as simply the study of behavior, the science of behavior. This contrasts the definition we have now of psychology being the study of the mind and behavior. The behaviorists wanted nothing to do with this idea of the mind because they argued that mental events are not publicly observable. The only objective evidence that's available, therefore, is behavioral evidence. By only studying behavior, psychology could finally become an objective science is what they thought. I can't see your thoughts. I don't know what you're thinking. You don't know what I'm thinking. So how are we supposed to study it? We we can only see behavior. So we might as well only focus on that. And that's what the behaviorists thought. They wanted psychology to just be the study of behavior. So their proposition was that all research should study only behavior and observable events. The only observable events are the stimulus that a person senses and the corresponding response that they make. It was a totally reductionist approach. They ignored the mind, thinking, imagination, emotions, plans, desires, intentions, ideas. According to them, 
all psychological activity can be adequately explained without resorting to mysterious things that happen in the mind. And it was really a fair idea for the time, this behavioral revolution, because behaviorism spoke to many legitimate needs of the scientific community at the time. And this brings us to exactly why John B. Watson created behaviorism. He coined the term behaviorism, and he's often called the first behaviorist, although this may only be due to the fact that he failed to mention a lot of his early influences in his writings. He would just refer to them as the behaviorists. Uh, but he, 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 he was quite influential, but he certainly did have influences before him. But for our purposes, we'll say he's, he's the first behaviorist. He criticized the research techniques that prevailed in the field of psychology at that time. A very popular research technique was introspection. And this involved reflecting on and reporting your mental processes. So for example, a psychologist might attempt to examine and describe her thoughts and emotions while looking at a picture. The problem with this introspection, though, was that it required significant training to master it. And even two experienced psychologists might report different thoughts and emotions when performing the exact same task. So it's not so objective. Watson recognized this flaw, and he argued that any study of a sensation, a feeling, or any state of consciousness should have no place in the field of psychology. It's, it's purely subjective, he thought, to think about what happens in the mind. Due to these early troubles in relying on introspection, behaviorism actually seemed like a breath of fresh air during the opening decades of the 20th century. Like Watson, B.F. Skinner asserted that it was unnecessary to point to unobservable events, unobservable events to explain behavior. With Skinner leading the way now, behaviorism really flourished in the United States in the 1930s. Skinner is just as or even more influential than Watson because he popularized the study of operant conditioning. Any uh, first-year psychology student or any psychology student who even takes one, or any student studying something else who takes only one course in psychology will immediately learn about uh, the quite influential uh, study of operant conditioning. This is where a scientist studies how reinforcement shapes learning and behavior. It was typically done with laboratory animals like rats and pigeons. So for example, they, they would study uh, the rate at which a pigeon would peck a certain target based on the rate that they gave that pigeon food for pecking. So they could vary the amount or the, the rate at which they would give the pigeon food, and this would change the pigeon's behavior. So they just figured, oh, we can study these observable events. They're simply based on how we change the stimulus they get and how much food they get in their environment, and that directly maps onto the behavior they produce. No need to study what's going on in the mind of the pigeon. So the work of the behaviorists showed that behavior could be influenced by manipulating how often an animal gets a reward. So changing the rate of providing the reward for certain behaviors created a very predictable pattern. And you can see why behaviorism was like a breath of fresh air early on. And 
these experimentalists were loving this new approach to psychology because they could systematically study an observable thing like behavior. How many times does this pigeon peck? And they could even predict when those behaviors were going to happen as they changed the schedule that they gave that pigeon or rat a reinforcement. So for example, if I give a rat one piece of food for every 10 presses, I know exactly the rate at which this rat is going to press this lever. And I know when that rate will slow, if it'll speed up. And there are all these curves that they generated based on the schedule that they give the rat, the reinforcer. Equally, if they made it so that they would give uh, the rat a reinforcer every 100 presses, the rat would show a different behavior. Or if they put it on a, a time schedule where they gave the rat food every five minutes, without it having anything to do with the rats responding, that produces a different schedule. So it seemed to map uh, so clearly between the stimulus they provide and then the behavior that, that comes out. There's no need to have this intervening variable of the mind. And this is why Skinner and his followers, like Watson before them, explicitly excluded mental life. They thought the human mind was nothing but a black box. According to them, we only know for sure what goes into the mind, an observable environmental stimulus, and what comes out of it, an observable behavior. So we need not worry about what happens in between. What goes on in the mind is pure conjecture. So why try to study it, was what they thought. But there are serious issues with this black box approach. Behaviorists really overestimated the scope of their theories, and they presumed that they were capable of, that their theories were capable of accommodating all forms of animal and human behavior. They were serious victims of overgeneralizing their results from animals and thinking it could directly apply to humans. Even for complex forms of human behavior like language, they thought their theories could explain everything. But it soon became clear that as soon as you up the complexity of what the mind can do, like language, planning, problem solving, imagination, and other cognitive processes, it becomes impossible for the behaviorist model to provide any type of a a realistic explanation for these complex behaviors. Psychologists soon began to produce papers showing how strict behaviorist approaches were simply making the scientific study of the mind impossible with this black box idea. How are we supposed to study the mind if you just write it off as a black box? So behaviorism, though an initially compelling avenue for experimental psychology, was soon proven to have no potential for success by the mid-1950s. And that brings us to the cognitive revolution. What was happening in the 1950s that started this revolution that brought the mind back into experimental psychology? Well, in truth, the mind never really disappeared from psychology. It was only really in the U.S. where behaviorism completely took over. It's no coincidence that it took over in the same place where these influential theorists like Watson and Skinner were conducting their research. But either way, there, there was this huge wave that, that had to be supplanted. The exact moment when it was supplanted by the cognitive revolution seems to be in 1956. Bruner, Goudenow, and Austin at, uh, at this 
in this year published a study of thinking which took seriously the notion of cognitive strategies, thinking strategies, and studying the mind. Theories on perception and memory were presented, all things within the mind again. Carroll edited a collection of papers by Worf on the effects of language on thought. Both of these things the behaviorists paid absolutely no mind to. The Special Group on Information Theory also met at MIT in this same year of 1956. At that meeting, Chomsky, Miller, Newell, and Simon each presented groundbreaking papers, all in independent areas, but all focusing on mental processes. And then we go onward to the 1960s. By then, the relevance of the Skinnerian approach for understanding complex mental processes was seriously questioned. Chomsky's scathing review of Skinner's behaviorist theory of verbal behavior in 1959 showed that it could not possibly account for human language acquisition. We can't just use these behaviorist theories to explain these complex human behaviors. At Harvard in 1960, Bruner created the Center for Cognitive Studies. In Cambridge around the same time, Sir Bartlett's work on memory and thinking continued. In Geneva, Piaget's insights into the mind of children had inspired a an army of followers. And in Moscow, Luria was one of the first to see the brain and mind as a whole. These were some of the several events in the paradigm shift that by then had gained enough steam to be known as the cognitive revolution. In conjunction with concurrent advances in other areas from computer science, artificial intelligence, neuroscience, genetics, and evolution, the scientific study of the mind quickly became the foundation for much of the evolving new psychological science that has progressed all the way into the 21st century now. But was it a complete revolution? Was it a real paradigm shift going from these behavioral approaches to these cognitive ones? Maybe not. I mean, some argue that the development of cognitive psychology did represent a scientific revolution because the methods of behaviorism were totally supplanted by the methods of cognitive psychology, they think. They argue that the shift to the study of the mind was a revolution, since it came in direct response to the inability of the behaviorist framework to answer questions in the field. And this really matches with Thomas Kuhn's influential definition of a paradigm shift in a revolution. It's where one theoretical basis, for example, behaviorism, completely gives way to a new theoretical uh, basis because the first one had totally irresolvable problems. So this is Kuhn's definition. And, and some theorists argue that the cognitive revolution was a revolution just like this because the behaviorist theories had completely irresolvable problems that the cognitive revolution actually started to solve once we started to turn our lens to looking at the human mind and studying the mind rather than writing it off as a black box. So according to some, the cognitive revolution was a true revolution because it was exactly this. But recent work points to the idea that the movement from behaviorism to cognitive psychology should not be characterized as a paradigm shift. Behaviorists during the supposed revolution, maintained their journals. 
their own division in the American Psychological Association, and a sizable professional membership. Even Skinner's school of the most radical behaviorists actually expanded during the same time uh, that the cognitive revolution was starting in the 1950s. Behaviorism was not violently displaced, but only faded as the cognitive approach evolved. In addition, the primary stimulus for the emergence of cognitive psychology actually came in large part from external developments from other fields rather than directly from the issues faced by behaviorism. So it may not have been a paradigm shift based on Kuhn's definition, where one theoretical basis for a field gives way to another because of the irresolvable problems of the first one. It might not have been because of the issues behaviorism faced that the cognitive revolution came about. It was actually, it was, the cognitive revolution was actually influenced a lot from other fields, from AI, from Turing, from other theorists. And it wasn't exactly a direct response to behaviorism in some ways. Further, the conflict between behaviorism and cognitive psychology was actually not even a conflict between exclusive paradigms, like was the case, for instance, between the physical theories of Newton and Einstein. When it came to the conflict between Newton and Einstein, the evidence that supported Einstein's theory clearly demonstrated an inadequacy of Newton's theory, and this led to the rejection of Newton's theory. On the other hand, with the cognitive revolution, few behaviorists adopted the belief that there was some kind of fundamental inadequacy in their theories. Their theories were still able to explain a lot of things sufficiently. So it wasn't like this revolution took place and then all of a sudden everybody ditched behaviorism. They still, they refused to accept that there was an inadequacy in their theories. So rather than behaviorism completely being supplanted, the cognitive revolution merely allowed anomalies in the behaviorist theories to be recognized and for the behaviorists to shrink their scope of explanations. So some things can, could still be explained through a behaviorist lens, but not nearly as much was previously thought. The cognitive revolution is ongoing to this day. And theories of cognitive processing continue to be developed. Contemporary psychology no longer considers theories about unobservable conscious states to be unscientific like the radical behaviorists did. The once ignored study of the mind is now here to stay in the ever-changing field of psychology. Thank you for listening to this episode, everybody. If you liked it, the best thing that you can do is to share it with someone who you think would like it too. This has been the Insightful Thinkers Podcast, in-depth analysis, diverse set of topics. We'll see everybody next week. This podcast is a production of Insightful Thinkers Media.